Hello, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts, uh, where we talk astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. So good to have your company yet again. Now, coming up on episode 322, we are talking about uh, some of the things China is up to on the moon. Of course, uh, they've got uh, a few things going on at the moment, uh, but they're also planning three new missions. Uh, They have also announced the discovery of a new lunar mineral which they've called Changi Site. What is that? We'll find out because Fred knows. Uh, also, uh, NASA, the latest on their attempt to get to the moon and the um, uh, the fallout, boom, boom, from the Blue Origin rocket crash. We will look at that. And we've got questions from Rebecca about mo- the moon being hit by rocks and what that could do with uh, future moon missions or even a moon base. And Mikey wants to know how we know galaxies are interacting from the photographs we see in the James Webb Space Telescope because there are so many of them and how do you know they're getting together or they're not thousands or millions of light years apart? It's a, it's a great question. We'll do all that right now on the latest edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, and joining me as always is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. I'm still at large. They haven't found me yet. It's yes, very good, yes. good news. You, you lock yourself away in that little <laughs> yeah, cubicle true, of yours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got everything you need there, really. I do, yes, that's right. I've got everything here. Yeah. Yeah. No need to emerge. No, never do that. I'm kind of the same. It's just, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm happy with I'm, me and my trophies. Yes, that's right. Really all, your, all your trophies, yeah. Don't need anything. I don't need food, just the trophies. <laughs> well, you could probably eat them if <laughs> the worst came to the worst. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, we've got a fair bit on today, and uh, it looks like thumbs up to China. Thumbs down to NASA and Blue Origin at the moment when it comes to the moon. So let's let's start with China. Uh, what's Chang'e site? Ah, well, it is a new mineral that, uh, or a newly discovered mineral, if I can put it that way, uh, that has been found among samples uh, that the Chinese, uh, I think it was Chang'e Six mission, uh, if I remember rightly, returned to Earth um, in. When was it? A couple, uh, I beg your pardon. It was, no, it was, it was Chang'e 5, uh, which landed in 2020 uh, and then sent them back. I think it was, it was quite a while before they, before they arrived back, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah. Yes, Chang'e 6 is the next moon mission. I apologise for the mix-up there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, actually, there is a, there's a substantial lump of stuff came back with Chang'e 5, Chang'e 5, um, uh, something like uh, almost two kilograms of material uh, collected robotically on the moon's surface, uh, which has now been analysed. And among these, uh, you know, samples of lunar soil is a crystal <laughs> or a type, mm. a, a new type of crystal. Um, I think they've only found one of them, actually, uh, but it's a material which is being called Chang'e site. Chang'e, Chang'e of course, is the 
is I think it's the goddess of the moon, if I remember rightly, in Chinese culture. Uh, mm. It's what the whole set of Chang, Chang emissions is named after. But this um, mineral is, well, it's interesting because it, China's only the third nation ever to discover a new lunar mineral. Uh, US did it with, of course, uh, material from the Apollo missions and in and the Soviet Union uh, had their lunar sample return missions, which I think were in the late 60s, maybe 70s. Which they just renamed, actually. It's Putin site. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, the... <laughs> Uh, the, but the, but yeah, the, the really interesting aspect of this uh, newly discovered crystal is, uh, or this mi- mi- sorry mineral, um, is that it could potentially uh, be an energy source, uh, mm. which is why there's so much interest in it. So uh, it's technically described as a phosphate mineral in columnar crystal, which means it makes long crystals. Apparently, yeah. they're transparent. Uh, yeah, sorry, transparent and, and colourless. Um, but the clue uh, to the idea of it being an energy source is that the mineral contains helium-3, uh, which I think you and I have spoken about before, uh, is extremely rare on Earth. I think it's only produced in nuclear reactors, uh, but uh, is probably fairly abundant on the moon because it uh, is a product of the interaction between the solar wind, uh, charged particles uh, uh, from the sun, and the lunar material. Uh, So we think there's lots of helium-3 on the moon, and you don't need much of it to make a a nuclear reactor, which is very clean. You can sit it on a tabletop (laughs) and Mm. just run it, uh, and it'll power, you know, two or three cities. Uh, So this is, I think, as yet, is all... um, uh, a few, excuse me, future um, uh, proposals. Uh, nobody's built a helium three reactor, but we think it is a possibility and maybe a future source of energy. So that um, might well, you know, spur. Um, nations on to think about mining the moon uh, people are all already thinking about mining the moon but finding this uh, phosphate related changesite mineral uh, is bound to push that ahead i think especially for the chinese so they are planning uh, i think three more uh, uncrewed missions to the moon uh, yeah. over the next few years which is good news it's always interesting to get you know new new facilities on the moon yeah, as long as it's cooperative, I, 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 you know, I don't want them being like school kids playing marbles and they're just going, mine, mine, mine. Well, you can't have anything. Um, yeah, the, I'm sure they will uh, <laughs> to some extent. Um, I, 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 you know, that's just in human nature, isn't it? But I agree with you. Uh, what will be lovely will be to see, uh, you know, these samples. Uh, that the Chinese have recovered, for example, being distributed around uh, laboratories around the world. I'm sure they're already distributed around laboratories, but I don't know how internationally they've been Mm. distributed. When you think about what NASA brought back from the moon in the Apollo era, and admittedly there was a third of a ton of it, so it was a lot of stuff, um, uh, those samples went everywhere. They went to just about every laboratory with equipment uh, that was capable of analysing it. So yeah, uh, every, every state in the US got their own rock and now they want them back, but there are several missing. Yeah. <laughs> what yes. I've heard. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Things well, and someone good. probably shoved it in a drawer and said, what's this dirty thing? Well, it could no. be. And, yeah. Just shove it in here. Oh, good paperweight. 
Yeah, um, nice paperweight. A bit I dirty. don't wonder about the International Space Treaty, which says you can't own anything outside of Earth, uh, but anything you take from a place you get to keep. Does that mean it's no holds barred on mining? Yes, that's right. That's exactly the situation, Andrew. That mm. um, you can't you can't state your claim and say we're going to mine this and nobody else can. That that can't happen. Right, uh, but. Um, and nobody can own the moon, but they can tear it to shreds. So you could. So the bottom line is, anything you bring back from space is it's yours. Your. Um, but I think that's only legislation that's enacted in a few countries. I don't think it's global. Okay. Uh, I, certainly in the US, I think in the UK and Luxembourg, if I remember rightly, as well, has that <laughs> right. Uh, enacted in it. Got to watch out for those Luxembourgians that are out there. <laughs> well, they they certainly are very interested in space commercialization. They see themselves as a you know a global powerhouse of space industry. So mm. um, not to be taken lightly. I think uh, that that change in in legislation was something that was seen to to probably open the open the way to attracting more um, you know global level uh, commercial interests that that are interested in mining space uh, space objects uh, to attract them to Luxembourg to make that their headquarters. I think the day will come, Fred, where just about every country in the world will have some stake in what's happening beyond the surface yes. of Earth. The off-planet. Right the major players are um, the United States, Russia, China, and uh, you know India's not far behind yeah. these days and a few others. Um, I, I, we've got ourselves a new space race now, and I understand that the target areas that NASA are looking at for future uh, walks on the moon and, and moon bases is the same area that China wants to. Well, yeah, that's um, because so they talk, you're talking about the South Pole region, where there are very deep craters that never get sunlight, and mm. they are thought to have water ice in them, uh, which will be easy to extract. And of course, if you can uh, use solar power to uh, provide a, a, an electrolytic cell, you can you can turn water into hydrogen and oxygen, which not only lets you breathe uh, the oxygen part of it, but hydrogen and oxygen make rocket fuel. That's the you know that's the the great thing about it. So it's yeah. it's potentially a, a refueling station for uh, for a spacecraft leaving the Earth and leaving our vicinity. Well, that's that's the plan for future Mars missions, isn't it? To uh, use the moon as a perhaps a, a jump point. Yeah, and maybe you know because of the moon's low gravity, you don't have to use that much energy to get your tanks of hydrogen and oxygen up into lunar orbit. And if mm. you can then rendezvous uh, with uh, a spacecraft in lunar orbit, uh, a you know a tanker craft, fill up your spacecraft, and then head. Head yourself off to Mars. It makes life a lot easier. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, none of that um, gravity causing all that trouble. Yeah, the, that, that's right. So if you've got to take all your water from Earth, you've got to escape the Earth's gravitational potential, and we've got, mm. as you know, an escape velocity more than eleven kilometers per second. So it's a challenge, which is much, it's certainly much less than that on the Moon. I should yeah. check what it is. Actually, I'm not sure what the Moon's escape velocity is. It'd be a lot at one eighth, maybe. <laughs> well, it's one sixth of the gravity, oh, so okay. it's probably yeah, that's probably right. It's probably going to be mm. the you know divide eleven by six, and you get sort of two so that's probably what it is yeah maybe. somebody will look it up <laughs> yeah probably and they'll email us and say well you were wrong yeah yeah <laughs> wasn't me no, no it's me no it's, it's all my uh, 
while we're on the moon, uh, we should do a, a NASA update. Um, what's what's the latest with Ar- Artemis One? Do we have any new information? We do. Yes, that um, Artemis One is postponed again uh, mm. with difficulties still to do with the uh, w- with the, the fuel system. That you know, there was this issue with the hydrogen uh, being loaded into the into the launch vehicle uh, yeah. and um, well a leak that was one thing uh, but there were other problems as well but there's there's actually uh, another issue now um, which is a little bit more subtle and it and it's it's that basically the um, you know, it's the the protocols and the rules and regulations. Um, I'm just so I get this right. I'm going to read from uh, our favourite um, uh, science news source, phys.org. Uh, they've got an article about this on there, which uh, went up uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, I think. Um, and they're saying NASA's targeting September 27th as the earliest possible date. Uh, this is a blog post from NASA. Uh, mm. But apparently this date depends, and I'm quoting here, on engineering teams successfully carrying out a test to fuel up the Space Launch System rocket, which we know about, and receive a waiver to avoid retesting batteries on an emergency flight system that is used to destroy the rocket if it strays from its designated range. Oh. If, it does, if it does not receive the waiver... The rocket will have to be wheeled back to its assembly building, pushing the time back, timeline back several weeks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so uh, it could be – so what we've got at the moment is the possibility of a 70-minute launch window on September the 27th with a splashdown then on November 5th uh, of the uncrewed Orion capsule. Um, yeah. uh, but if that doesn't work, the next uh, window is October the 2nd. So um, – you can see there's plenty of opportunities, but um, but they come in steps. They don't, they, you know, it's not just oh, it's all ready to go now. We'll press the button. Yeah. Uh, it's all about launch windows, which we've talked about before, Andrew. And yeah, and and I, I believe that um, there is a limit on that. I, I I think they they they're going to reach a point if they can't get it off the ground by a certain date, where they're going to have to, you know, roll it back to the shed anyway, because the the opportunities will be minimal. I think um, there's issues with consumables, you know, with, um, uh, I, I guess, batteries and things of that sort, which yeah. uh, might well need replaced. They've only got a certain lifetime. I'm not sure what the what the deal is, but mm. uh, you're quite right that it, it's it may well be that we, we wind up, as we did with that April uh, dry run that was planned. Um, oh, sorry, it was a wet run, wasn't it? They were going to fuel yeah. it up and do everything except uh, press the button to launch it, um, where it was in the end rolled back to the to the vehicle assembly building, and and not. I don't think it finally came back until June. I think that's when the test was completed. Mm, yeah. It, well, you know, they they've got to get it right. So better, it right, to, yeah. better to be careful. Same same with the James Webb Space Telescope. It was delayed for a very long time before they got it off the ground. Years and it, um, you know, rightly so. Yeah, uh, yeah. You get it right first time. Um, that's that's fine. But if you make a mistake out of haste or just because you take a little shortcut here or there, no coming back from that if something goes wrong. No, especially with something like the web, where you know you spent decades building the thing and then yeah. have it uh, fail 
to to be delivered to its orbital position, that will be a, a catastrophe. That's right. It, it would be yes. Okay. Well, uh, lots of interest in the moon at the moment, uh, and we um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Uh, if China has discovered a new mineral that could be a, a power source, gee, that that could be um, that could be incredible for the for the future of the planet. If they're willing if they're willing to share. And I hope they are. It'd be good for them because they're pumping out more CO2 from coal-fired power stations than any other country. Uh, and you know, we're all yeah, talking yeah. getting the air clean and, and reducing fossil fuel use. And wouldn't it be great if they found something that could do it? Would be amazing. Okay, um, we'll be back to the moon in future episodes and I don't think that'll be too long, possibly next week. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, another mission that uh, went awry, unfortunately, this one for Blue Origin was a launch the other day, which saw, unfortunately, uh, the rocket crash. And uh, that's set their plans back, um, not only their space tourism plans, but their uh, their other uh, missions as well. I think they, they transport astronauts, do they not? At, at the very least, they transport, uh, transport uh, goods on some of their um, Shepard spacecraft, is that right? Not to um, orbit. These are uh, suborbital uh, rockets, Andrew. Oh, okay. and you're quite right that um, it, its main target is the suborbital tourism trade. Mm. Uh, and Blue Origins had an incredibly successful track record with this. So the idea is it's the traditional sort of, you know, idea of a rocket with a capsule on top. Uh, it's not nowhere near as big as a rocket that's going to take you into orbit, but it's it's pretty, you know, it's standard stuff with, um, I can't remember whether it's kerosene or liquid hydrogen. I think they use kerosene uh, as the fuel. Um, so a small and, rocket. And we call it in Australia, Fred, Caro. <laughs> Error, yeah, as, Error. We, as, we, as we called it in Britain, paraffin. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah right. anyway. It much classier than Kero. <laughs> yes, it does. I might be wrong with that, but I think that's what they fuel it with. So you've got a small version of a, you know, a standard rocket with a capsule on top, and the tourism venture is essentially a 10-minute flight where the rocket propels uh, the capsule up to uh, – Something like um, I can't remember what it, what uh, velocity is. It's 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 almost. I think it's half a kilometer per second, if I mm. remember rightly. And that and that when you when you've got it to that speed, you let the capsule go, and the capsule heads out uh, to a hundred kilometers before it falls back. And uh, while it is in free fall, you are feeling no gravity. So that's the attraction for tourists. Uh, it means that um, they get a view of the Earth's curvature. Uh, they can float around in the capsule, and then it lands more or less where it took off, but using parachutes. Uh, and that's been proven a number of times. They've had a number of paying flights. It's all worked very well. Yeah. Uh, in in the normal scenario, the rocket itself, um, it, once it's uh, projected its uh, payload up to the right velocity, that comes back down and lands on its tail, like the SpaceX Falcon rockets do. Um, mm. So, But uh, as well as... Uh, carrying, uh, you know, passengers. Uh, the and th this particular type of rocket is called the New Shepard. It's a new, the, this, its name. It was taken from uh, is it Alan Shepard, the first uh, yes, American into space. Um, that's right. Uh, that's where the name comes from. And so uh, it's it, it 
not only flies for uh, sending for suborbital flights with crew on board, uh, it also is used for scientific experiments. And that's what this particular flight was doing a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, was taking up a set of instruments in the in the capsule. I'm not sure what sort of experiments were there, but they were all robotic, though none of them needed humans to be present. Um, but about a minute into the flight, and you can find the footage, I saw it on uh, space.com, uh, yeah. the footage of the flight, the whole flight, which didn't last very long, uh, <laughs> about a minute into the flight, um, you can see that something's going wrong. Uh, there's a lot of smoke uh, and uh, a, a wavy vapor trail rather than uh, you know the straight line that you expect and then the whole thing looks as though it's en- enveloped in flames but i think that is the the jettison rockets firing to take the capsule off off the rocket itself the launch yes, vehicle of course they have a safety protocol to save the capsule and it That's works right. so yeah. they, and, they, i suppose the positive out of it is they managed to test that and it worked <laughs> they tested it and it worked. That's right. So it it lifted the capsule off, uh, and the capsule made a normal recovery back down mm-hmm. to ground with its drogue shoots um, opening up and then its main shoots, and then right at the end there's a little blast of uh, of rockets t- bef- just to s- slow it down in the last meter or so before it hits the ground, and that yeah. all worked perfectly and nothing was damaged. Um, and of course. Uh, if there had been crew on board, they would almost certainly have survived with uh, without a, a, any issue. So it's a, an unfortunate uh, accident for Blue Origin, but it has demonstrated that their their safety procedures work very well. Um, as a consequence of it, though, the Federal Aviation Administration has grounded all the new Shepard suborbital rockets. Um, that's apparently standard process uh, and once that's done uh, then all sorts of investigations will go on to work out what happened uh, before they are granted permission to launch again so it might be a while before uh, the, the new Shepard rocket program uh, starts up again uh, it was yeah. however the 23rd mission uh, yes, so they've done very very well yeah, most of the time in these situations, the the explosions happen early. Yes, well, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, the first few missions tend to fall over, but they've uh, they've had a golden run. And even though this is a setback, uh, I'm sure they'll figure out what happened and they'll be able to make it safer for future missions. Yeah. Uh, but 23 before you had an incident, it's not a bad record. Yes. Not a bad record at all. It's very good going. That's right. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, the thing got up to uh, 1,126 kilometres per hour before the um, uh, the incident occurred. It was probably occurring as it was um, getting to that speed. But uh, gee, that's that's um, that's pulling some G's, isn't it? it yes, it is. Uh, so uh, that's about a third of a kilometre per second, roughly, mm. something like that. Uh, and it reached uh, eight and a half kilometres as well, uh, 28,000 feet. Uh, yeah, well, you know, even if it had people on board, they would have got a nice flight down. <laughs> they wouldn't have made it. Uh, the moment when yeah. all hell broke loose around them, but um, 
Because they were so low, the parachutes opened very quickly, so they would have only had a short spell of zero gravity. But I think they might have been glad to get back on yeah, terra probably. firma, though, if they had been there. Yeah. But that, yeah. uh, I guess that means that the experiments and everything are intact, perhaps. And as far um, as we know, that's right. Yeah, they might be able to get another crack at it. So, yeah, well, um, you know, it's sad news, and um, they're grounded for the time being, but um, it does sound like they will be able to learn something from it and... Uh, safer safer launches going forward. Indeed. Fingers crossed, yeah. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Geez, we're rattling along rather quickly today, Fred, but um, that's okay because you've got places to be, I've got places to be, we've got yeah. things to do. <laughs> uh, and right now one of the things we're going to do is uh, take some audience questions. We've got a new batch. Uh, you might remember I mentioned the other day that my email wiped itself. I did, yes. Without explanation and I lost all the questions. Well, we've got a new batch, so thank you for uh, coming to our aid. Uh, the response was amazing. We've got a whole bunch. Uh, we're going to go through a couple of audio questions today. First up, we are going to hear from Rebecca in Geelong, Victoria, who uh, is taking us back to the moon. We haven't talked about that today yet. Hi, Andrew and Fred. This is Rebecca from Geelong in Australia. I have a question about the moon. I was reading recently that there are about 100 asteroids that hit the moon every single day. And because there's basically no atmosphere on the moon, they impact. Is this a concern when we're looking at having a lunar base for future space missions? Um, I look forward to your answer. And thank you so much for putting out this podcast every week. It is wonderful to listen and learn from you guys. Bye. Bye. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Gee, that, that's lovely that you feel yeah. that way. We really appreciate it. And uh, it's good to have a, um, a female perspective. Uh, I know we've got plenty of female listeners, but seemingly most of the questions come from blokes. And uh, yeah, it's nice to hear from you. And good luck to the cats uh, in the uh, AFL finals. I know they're still in the hunt. So um, I think they're in the qualifying final for uh, against uh, Brisbane. The, uh, I think it's Brisbane. And if they win that, they're in the grand final against the Swans, who still have to beat Collingwood. But, you know, let's just not make assumptions. I think I just did. Uh, now, uh, Rebecca's question is uh, all about the uh, the moon and it getting hit at a rate of knots. Uh, I have heard that too, that the moon, because it lacks an atmosphere, is unprotected, so it gets pummeled more so than, than the Earth does, although we get hit a fair bit as well. I think we get hit like 30,000 times a year or something, but they're only tiny little things. Um, yeah, but what are future missions and maybe moon bases? How do they uh, How do they get around that one? Well, let's just um, backtrack a little bit because yep. uh, the the hundred that Rebecca mentioned um, might not be a hundred asteroids. Uh, it might be one hundred tons of meteoritic material hitting the moon because that's the amount that we think hits the Earth every day. One hundred tons of mostly dust particles, but often small rocks and things in between uh, mm. as well, um, it, which is a phenomenal amount. You know, that's all raining down on the Earth's atmosphere. But that's what we get by calculating what we think the particle density is in, in the Earth's vicinity. So 100 tonnes of stuff. Could, yeah. could be. It, I think the figure's fairly uncertain. I think it's 50 to 100 is what is estimated. So I wonder if that's 
kind of what uh, Rebecca means because um, most of that stuff is just small dust particles. Admittedly, it's coming in at high velocity. Uh, and on the moon surface, you're absolutely right. You are both absolutely right. There's no atmosphere to to, to cause those bits and pieces to, to burn up uh, as they do on Earth. We see them as shooting stars or meteors. Mm. Uh, a few of them are bright. We see them as fireballs. They burn up too, but sometimes they're ob- the objects are big enough to hit the ground. And that happens on the moon too, and incidentally on Mars. Um, you and I, Andrew, have talked occasionally about new craters that appeared on Mars. They're just a yes. few meters across. That that you know they're on one orbital shot, orbital image, and not. Sorry, they're on one orbital image and not the one before it. Um, you made. Yes, so uh, it does happen. And um, since most of that material is is small, you can you can build in protection that will actually help to you know to mitigate the effects uh but we've got the evidence of um uh 12 astronauts walking on the moon in the 1960s and 70s uh we don't think any of them were dinged by micrometeorite uh, micrometeorites which is what they would be because they hit the ground um there will be my, micrometeoroids in space uh so it's it's uh it is uh, something that um Scientists, mission scientists, and astronauts are aware of, uh, and and of course it's the same issue in the International Space Station. You've got uh, the same exposure to this dust flux of dust particles as you have on the Moon yeah. and on the Earth, but of course the difference is, as we've said, the Earth's yeah. protected by its atmosphere. Neither the space station nor the a lunar station would be, but um, we know from our experience with the International Space Station it's done pretty well. It's been quite robust against has, this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And the James Webb Space Telescope's been clobbered a few times. It has, it's, yeah. Uh, I think 23 is the last number I heard. 23, the yeah, numbers are 23 right. times, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, after it's however many years, it might, yeah, it might, might look a bit, a bit tattered. That's in an exceptional place, though, remember? It's at the second yeah. Lagrange point, and that's going to be a, a dust, you know, it's going to be where dust collects because it's a gravitational null point. So there's mm. probably more dust there than there is falling either on the moon or on the surface of the Earth. So putting missions back on the moon, putting habitat on the moon, there, there is a risk. There's a risk. That's right, but it's pretty low, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and would they and be I, able to build habitat that could take a couple of hits? Yeah, I think you'd stick it underground because that, um, as well, is going to protect you from, uh, you know, the sun's ra- radiation, the particles that come from the sun, which are themselves uh, things that can penetrate uh, thin metal. Mm. Um, uh, so I think you'd, you know. People have certainly talked about any any long term uh, human habitation on the moon will probably be in underground shelters. Yeah, or maybe in a deep crater. Would that be feasible? Yeah, that that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, the kind of thing that people have thought about on Mars is putting them in lava tubes. Lava we tubes, know that there yeah. are lava tubes on on Mars, which is a natural cave that you might want to stick your equipment in and yourself, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's a. It's a good Sorry. idea. I'm sure they've got think tanks working on all of this. Uh, they do, yes. <laughs> uh, because uh, not only do they want to put people back on the moon to walk around and go, oh, look, there's Earth, uh, mm. they want to uh, they want to establish moon bases. I'm sure China's got the same idea. I'm sure. Actually, I heard there's probably going to be a joint venture mission between China and Russia, which wouldn't surprise me. 
Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know we'll probably have a few nations up there in the not too distant future. Um, you know, just hanging out, bouncing a ball as high <laughs> as they can, see what they can do. Making drop ball it, drop, dropping hammers and feathers together yeah, to yeah, show that yeah. they yeah land at the same speed. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. All right, uh, Rebecca. Hope we answered your question. Thanks for sending it in. Uh, now we're off to Illinois, and it's Mikey who's got a really good question. This is very perspe- uh, perceptive. This comes from a James Webb Space Telescope image, uh, or several images, but I think I know the one he's referring to. Hey, Fred. Hey, Andrew. This is Mikey from Rainy, Illinois. Um, so it's five in the morning right now. I'm getting ready to start my day. Fire up your guys' brand new podcast, and I'm looking at the. JWST Epoch One image, um, the mosaic, and in the bottom left corner they have a pair of interacting spiral galaxies. And I just it's it brought up a question that I've had, and I, I always forget it, and it's fresh in my mind, so I'm going to ask it. So, how can we tell for sure that galaxies in these images are actually interacting with one another, or that they're not just in the background or the foreground of one another? because this is just such a big image that there's galaxies scattered everywhere. So I just want to know how, when we're taking apart and taking apart these images and, and finding everything in them, like how do they know that these two galaxies are actually interacting with one another and that they're just not in the background of one another or, you know, um, it's just itching my brain and I'm curious for you guys to explain it. Thanks guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Mikey. Uh, I am looking at the image right now that he's referring to, and I can see what he means. I mean, when you look at the image, everything in it looks individual, and you can't tell whether they're right next to each other or they're, you know, parsecs apart. It's 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 impossible to tell. So, how do we glean that from an image, or is there? already known science that's been done that um, already allows for these situations. <laughs> I'm, I'm just bringing the image up as well, just because mm. I love looking at it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and t- astronomers uh, have got a way of measuring the distance to galaxies, and that's to measure the redshift uh, which is the amount by which the light that left the galaxy has been stretched by the expansion of the universe. Um, So if you look at a group of galaxies, uh, then you you, you can't just make the assumption, exactly as Mikey says, you can't make the assumption that two galaxies nearby are in reality nearby. Mm. And there's a classic example of this, which is also in that first tranche of images that the James Webb Space Telescope released uh, back in July, uh, because they uh, put out a beautiful image of Stefan's Quintet. I don't know whether you've seen that one, Andrew. It was among the first tranche. And what you've got there is four galaxies uh, very close together. Sorry, five galaxies very close together. which uh, were, I think the name was given by Herr Dr. Stefan, who, if I remember rightly, it was uh, was Austrian, I think. Uh, it was a 19th century astronomer who uh, photographed these galaxies, uh, and the five of them together look uh, 
really as though they're they're all close together they're all interacting mm. um however as soon as we knew how to measure the distances to galaxies uh, we discovered that four of stefan's quintet four members are at a distance of 290 million light years but one of them which looks about the same size and you would never be able to tell just by looking at it uh, the other one is for only 40 million light years away. So much, oh. much nearer. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, basically it's uh, an eighth of the distance or s- seventh of the distance uh, of the others. Mm. Um, and so uh, that's come about because we can accurately measure the distance of a galaxy by means of its redshift. Uh, so uh, that will be done for many of the galaxies in that deep James Webb telescope image and i think i know the interacting ones you're looking at and i'm pretty sure they'll have been measured to be at the same redshift which means that they are genuinely interacting rather than just um a line of sight effect uh which is always an issue is you know it's always a potential problem it's the same um in our own galaxy when you're looking for double star when you're looking for binary stars uh how do you find a pair of stars that aren't just one behind the other uh, close together on the sky, but mm. not necessarily close together physically. Once again, it's a measure. It's a matter of measuring the distance, uh, or actually, in in the case of stars, you look for the proper motion. That's their motion through space. If they've got the same motion through space, you can be sure that they are inter interconnected. So, okay. so yeah. So it's all about you know not just looking at something. Uh, as as you would with Stefan's quintet, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Stefan, when he looked at it, thought they were all physically connected because that's exactly how they look. But one of them is only a seventh of, of, of the distance of the other three of the other four. Mm. So uh, you need to have the facts. That's the thing. Uh, you can't just make assumptions. And Mikey's absolutely right. You can't just uh, just because something looks that way doesn't mean to say that it is. Yeah. Okay. So it all comes down to redshift. And James Webb is very well placed to be able to analyse the yes. dark on that basis with infrared uh, technology on board. Yep. Infrared spectrometers, that's right. It's the perfect Indeed. tool. It's got several tools on it. It's got uh, all sorts of different wavelengths and light capability, hasn't it? Yeah, there's it's four bytes. Light speed, it can't do that. <laughs> can't do anything faster than light speed. No, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Mikey, thank you so much for your question. Great to hear from you. Uh, I know it's been a a short program this week, but uh, we we had very limited time availability to do the podcast. So um, we kind of got together at the last minute because our original appointment just wasn't going to happen. As it turns out, we both had something else on. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. Yeah. It wasn't just you. No. We both sort of ran into brick walls, but uh, we got there in the end. Uh, so um, anyway, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. If you do have a question for us, send it to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Click on the AMA link to send us a text or audio question. Or you can click on the tab on the right-hand side and send us an audio question that way. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, you are set. Smartphones, smart um, tablets, um, those things that they used to yell at people with that had the, <laughs> whatever they're called. Trumpet. Megaphone. Megaphone, that's the word. I couldn't think of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that doesn't really work. But no. we could hear you if it's a quiet enough day. 
Uh, But, yes, please keep your questions coming in and don't forget to leave reviews through your favourite podcast platform. We love your reviews. Uh, It really helps to grow our audience and we just want more and more people getting involved. If you're having fun, why should everyone else miss out? So... (laughs) Um, yeah, we're having fun too. Uh, and I'll just remind you that uh, we've got another podcast in our stable now called Astronomy Daily, which uh, gives you a sort of a daily 10-minute-ish news rundown of events uh, in the astronomical world. So uh, that's on the same website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, but it's also starting to appear on all the major podcasting platforms. I think we got accepted by Apple the other day. And I don't know if we told you this, Fred, but um, uh, Hugh sent me some information back uh, the other day about our uh, respective podcasts. And between uh, Space Time, Space Nuts and Astronomy Daily, we are holding the top three uh, positions in the iTunes science category for podcasting. Uh, Space Nuts is number one. Space Time is number two. And Astronomy Daily is already at number three, which (laughs) I'm gobsmacked. Honestly, I, I use that word too too often, but it's it's amazing. Great stuff! Can't believe it, mm. no. Frank. Uh, Frank, uh, Fred. <laughs> I, I answer to Frank. I get it all yeah, the time. I, I get called other things too, yeah. but I can't mention them on the radio or on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Fred, thank you so much. It's uh, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, you too, Peter. It's really good to <laughs> actually, you know, chat every week. That and we'll happened for a long time. Speak Peter. again soon. Okay. It was Dave, wasn't it? Not Peter. Dave, Dave. Dave. What are you thinking, Dave? Uh, Got Dave. Peter once there. <laughs> uh, now, as long as I'm not called late for dinner. Boom, boom. No, that's right. Okay. <laughs> that's enough. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Fred. We'll see you soon. Great stuff, Andrew. Take care. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and we thank him for uh, making himself available to us every week. And thanks to Hugh in the studio who sort of came in at the last second to save us and get us uh, all put together. Now he gets to do the uh, fun job of editing. (laughs) Worst job in the world. Uh, And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. Look forward to catching you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.